All right, good morning, familia. My name is Hannibal, and I wanted to welcome you all again, those of you that obviously are worshiping here with us in person, those of you worshiping with us online. And I understand that we have part of the football team from Wheaton College here today, somewhere back there, right? How about if you guys uh, raise your hand a little quick? Yeah. How about if we give them a round of applause? I got to tell you that I know nothing about football, but it's nice to have you guys here. Um, as we continue with our series in the Gospel of Matthew, um, I want to invite you to, to, to see this sermon as part two of the sermon Kyle preached last week. Part of the reason why I'm saying that is because last week Pastor Kyle talked about us as Christians being sent into the world to be people of compassion, to be people that love in word and deed, people that will make a difference in this world. Kyle said last week that that is part of what the Gospel of Matthew called us to be. And the reason why I said that this is part two of that sermon is because as we are being sent out, the Gospel of Matthew is going to tell us what we ought to expect as we respond to this call God is making uh, to us. So these are my, my two points for today. We're going to talk about what to expect and how to respond. Now, it's only two points. Don't get excited. I'm still going to preach the time that it was given to me. Um, so let's get to work. Point number one is what to expect. If you have been part of the church for a while, you probably already heard me saying at one point or, or another that one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it's honest. Like it tells you what you need to hear. Part of the reason why I find that a, a very interesting thing, an important thing as a believer, is because I see a God in the Bible that is not interested uh, in tricking people into Christianity. He's not a God that, um, that makes false promises. He's not a God that has hidden fees, if you will. He's a God that tells you exactly how he is, who we are, and what he expects of us, even if it hurts. Actually, that's one of the reasons why we can trust the Bible. Because it tells you things that you probably would never want to hear. The passage we read this morning is one of those passages. It's one of those passages that tells you, yes, that Jesus is sending you into the world as sent people. That he's sending you into the world to love others. That he's sending you into the world to be light and salt. All these things. But he's going to tell you that that has a price to pay. Now, before I get into the text, I, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' feet. Because if I'm one of the disciples and I'm thinking, if I hear the first part of chapter 10, man, I got to tell you, I'll be super excited. I mean, if I'm hanging around with Jesus, and I've seen Jesus do miracles, perform things, do things that nobody else can do, say things that nobody else has said, if I see him uh, speaking to the devil and the devil running away, if I see all of that stuff, and then he looks at me and says, I'm going to make you part of that, I will be excited. I think that that's what happened with the disciples. If I was one of the disciples, I would say, man, I, I can't wait to see what the Lord is going to do. Actually, chapter, one, chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to give them authority and power to do crazy things. Can you imagine what would it be if every single one of us that are believers here 
God gives you the authority and the power to speak to evil spirits, and the spirits go away. That would be awesome. I mean, I try to speak to my dogs. I have two dogs, tiny ones too. Their names are Hercules and Zeus. And I speak to them, and I command them to do something, and they act like if they're Greek gods. Can you imagine what would it be for me if I had that power? I would say things to those dogs, and, and they would do stuff that no other dog has ever done. Like obey. <laughs> Can you imagine what would it be if you have the power to heal every disease and affliction? Think about the people you love. Think about the people that you have lost. You know how powerful it will be that we will have that power. So Jesus tells the disciples, that's exactly what I'm giving you. So if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, man, this is going to be great. But because Jesus is an honest God, before they get super excited and they get a big head, he tells them, well, let me, let, me, let me make it clear. What is it that you ought to expect as I'm sending you out into the world? Verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Verse 17, you will be handed over to the local consuls and be flogged. Once again, if you have been part of the church, you have probably heard me say that whenever you find the word sheep in the Bible, that is never a compliment. When God calls you and calls me sheep, that's not like, uh-uh, no, that, 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 that's not what that means. Actually, I think that whenever we read that, we should be a little bit offend, offended by God. You know why? Because sheep are needy, inadequate, weak, and not very smart. So look at what Jesus says to the disciples before they go into the world. Yes, I'm sending you, uh, I'm sending you into the world, but I'm sending you as sheep. With all your limitations, I'm sending you among wolves. Meaning that if you're going out there, you're going out there to love people in, with word and to love people indeed. But you must be careful because if you're not careful, you are going to be someone's lunch. You are not all that. That's what I would say. Actually, he continues and he says, I'm sending you out there. And there's a great possibility that people will hand you over to authorities. That means that people will betray you, even by the people that are supposed to protect you. And not only he says that that's what disciples would experience and followers of Christians, followers of Christ would experience, but he says that not only there's a great possibility that we'll be, we will be, be betrayed by people in authority or power, but also by family members. He says this in verses 18 uh, uh, through 22. He says, you will be brought before governors and kings. Brother will betray brother to death. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone. Uh, listen, that's not a good marketing strategy, you know? And yet Jesus wants them to be Jesus wants them to understand what is it that is expected 
By the way, the phrase hated by everyone, that, it doesn't mean that you're going to be hated by everyone. Because there's a lot of people that like Christians. But I think that what Jesus is doing there is using hyperbole or exaggeration to make the point, to make sure that you and I don't miss the point. If he is sending us out into the world to love in word and deed, we ought to expect persecution, rejection, and betrayal. Even by some family members. This is what I want you to see here, though. That this possibility of persecution, rejection, and betrayal will not come to us because we look for it. Will not come to us because of something we do. It will come to us because of the God we worship and what we represent. This is not Christians speaking out of fight. This is us living out our faith, worshiping our God, and living the way we're supposed to. Actually, just in case someone thinks that we ought to suffer and we ought to be persecuted for something we do, Jesus says in verses 18 and 22, if you're going to be persecuted, it'll be on my account. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings. Verse 22, you will be hated by everyone because of me. You know what that means? That a Christian, a believer, should not be persecuted, rejected, and betrayed because of arrogance, lack of gentleness, lack of the fruit of the Spirit, confusion between the Bible and politics, confusing the Bible with traditions, choosing preferences over the Bible, or adding or subtracting to the Bible. The text says that believers will suffer and be persecuted because of the God we worship and the things we stand for, not because of really lame character. See, if you are a believer, you will be persecuted somehow. Because you've chosen to worship one God. See, if you're a believer, you will be persecuted somehow. Because you only have one truth. Whatever the Bible says, that's the truth. See, you will be persecuted if you're a believer. I will be persecuted if I'm a believer. And I am a believer, just in case. Because Jesus demands loyalty, commitment, surrender, and love for him above everything else. Look at what he says in verse 37 and 38. Anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their sons and daughters more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Notice that he doesn't say that we shouldn't love other people. Notice that it doesn't say that we shouldn't love parents and kids. But we need to have the order right and the priority right. And my argument is super simple. If you don't know how to love right, love God right and love God first, you cannot love other people well. See, people in modern day, in our modern day culture, this postmodern progressive culture, hear things like this and say, Do you see, that's why I'm not a Christian. You guys are a culture of intolerance. How come you believe that there's only one God and one truth? And I think, that, I think that that's the case because part of the culture, part of the narrative in the culture is that 
they believe that if you hold to one truth, then that means that you got to hate everyone else. Actually, I read this week, um, a comedian says this. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. That's a lie. And the second lie is that if is that it to love someone means that you must agree with everything they believe, say, or do. And he says, both of those are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate and loving. Did you hear that? You don't have to compromise what the Bible says. You don't have to compromise the God you worship. You don't have to compromise what God expects of you in order for you to love people well. There's just a, a price to pay. Actually, Jesus makes it even more clear. He goes to the disciples and says, if they did it to me, man, they're going to do it to you. Verse 24. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now, let's stop there for a second. And think for just a second, how do you think that the disciples reacted when they heard that? So at the beginning of chapter 10, people are super excited. And by verse 16 on, you know, that excitement is like kind of fading away. It's almost like, oh. Now, we have enough information about the disciples in the, in the Gospels that we can safely assume how these people will react. I think that part of the group, at least three people from the disciples, will be super overconfident and say, let's do it. Who says fear? You know why I say that? Because you got people like Peter in that group, and you have people, uh, people like the sons of thunder. That should tell you something, James and John. But I also think that the rest of the group, the reaction was not that, but the reaction was more like fear. I think that part of the group is more like uh, the majority of the group, actually. I think that they're more like, man, it's cool to have that power, but I don't know about this. Something tells me that we get the same two reactions in this room this morning. Something tells me that some of you feel overconfident and some of you are fearful. And some of us have both of them. And I'm not going to ask you to do something, but I'm going to ask you to do something. Because we're family, all right? So let's say the Lord calls you, sending you out, and he says, well, this is what you're going to go through. How many of you guys feel right now overconfident, like, let's do it? Can, by show of hands? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty? Okay. How many of us actually feel the opposite? Fear. So there's people here that don't feel anything. That means that you're lying. <laughs> but if you notice, most of us will be in the second category. And you know why we feel that? Because that's part of what it means to be a human being. So this takes us to a second point. How is it that we ought to respond? And I love the way Jesus is going to do this. Because he's going to talk to, the, to, to those of you that are overconfident first. He's going to talk to my heart, to a fraction of my heart that tends to be a little bit more overconfident. 
And this is what he says, verse 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Look at what Jesus is saying to, let's say, Peter, James, and John, if that's the case. He says, as I'm sending you out, do not forget that you're still a sheep. Meaning that you're still needy, inadequate, weak, and sometimes not very smart. Therefore, if I'm sending you out, it's because you need me to go with you. Now listen up, church. And then he says to them, be shrewd. You know what that means? Be careful. Be sensitive. Be thoughtful. Be prudent. And be wise. Don't just react. Think. And then he says, and also be innocent. Which we can translate that word as gentile, uh, gentle and pure. This is the reason why I think Jesus says this. Because you don't have to compromise the truth in order to love people. But if you don't know how to love people well, you are compromising the truth. You heard that? You don't have to compromise the truth to love people. But if you don't love people well, you are compromising the truth. Because we are not only going into the world with the words of Jesus. We are going into the world with the character of Jesus. This is why Jesus says in verse 18, you are going out and suffer on my account. And in verse 22, you are going out and will suffer because of me. And in verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, nor the servant above his master. We don't get to go into the world with the words of Jesus and not the character of Jesus. You know how dysfunctional that is in someone's head. When I was prepping for this, I remember when, my, when both of my gar- girls were little. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of you guys go through that. You want your kids to be in the Bible, right? If you're Christian, so every, almost every night we'll say, okay, Bible reading time. And the girls never wanted to read the Bible. And at the beginning, it's like, come on, baby girl. Come, come here. We've got to read the Bible. You know, God is gentle and loving and patient. Come on, come on. And they would not pay attention. So you know what I would do? Come here, read the Bible. God is gentle and patient. <laughs> and you're like, how do, how do you put those two things together? <laughs> Therefore, church, I think the modern-day church has a lot of repenting to do. I think that modern-day church is not displaying. We might be saying the words of Jesus, but not the character of Jesus. And you don't get to do that. And that's what Jesus says to the overconfident. And that's what Jesus says to the one, let's do it. But now Jesus is going to turn the page and then talk to the rest of us. 
to the fearful ones. And I make the argument that I think that this was the majority of the group, not only because the disciples left Jesus alone when he was about to die, but because in the text, Jesus used the word fear more than anything else in the entire text. Because Jesus knows, hear me out, church, Jesus knows that fear is a real thing and that fear controls people. Jesus knows that fear is a real thing for us human beings, but also Jesus knows that fear controls people. You know who also knows that? Our culture. Why do you think that they do so many things to create fear in the hearts of people? Now, I'm going to give you a few examples. Listen, don't take this personal, okay? I'm just using this as examples. I don't have an agenda, just in case someone wants to send me an email later on. <laughs> what happens every four years? We vote for a president. I am old enough, I'm 47, so I'm old enough to remember the good old days. I'm old enough to remember that 20, 30 years ago, when a candidate was uh, promoting, the candidate will go before the nation promoting himself, Right? Or promoting herself and saying, these are the reasons why you got to trust me. These are the reasons why you got to vote for me. These are the reasons why I'm going to make this nation beautiful again. And then they will talk about the, their opponent. But the way they talked about their opponent was not to create fear in people. What has happened in the last 10, 20 years? That was flipped. The candidate goes before the nation. And they say, I'm going to give you 20,000 reasons why you should be afraid of that person. I'm going to give you 20,000 reasons to let you believe and understand that if this person wins, wins, what is God going to do with this nation? You know why they do that? Because they know that fear controls people. You know who else does that? Social media. That's, that, that's, the, that's the, the strategy. It's create fear in you to the point that we become irrational people. You know who else does that? The news. All right, for those of you that like CNN, I'm going to talk about CNN. And those of you that like Fox, I'm going to talk about them too. Have you ever watched the news and you get a flashing thing at the bottom of the screen that says, breaking news, breaking news, breaking news? Have you seen that? Why do they do that? To create this fear. What happened? What happened with this? This is the theologian Michael Horton talking about this. He's got a great book, talks about how is it that our culture is a culture that is driven by fear. And he says something that I find really funny and so true. Listen up. Please don't get offended, okay? Michael Horton said it. <laughs> the boomer generation is afraid of getting older. He said it. Generation X is afraid of being replaced. Millennials are afraid of not being special. <laughs> I... I I don't want to cause division in the church. I'm just reading the guy. 
And Generation C is afraid of everything. <laughs> I have two Generation Cs at home. And I asked them, and I asked one of them, is this true? And she goes like, totally. <laughs> this is what he says. Fear is such a powerful drug that it can be exploited. We live in a perpetual state of emergency. I think that's true. And Jesus knows that. And that's why Jesus is going to talk about fear in this passage more than anything else. So as he's sending out the disciples into the world, he's sending you and me into the world to love in word and deed. He's going to say four different times, or the equivalent of that, do not fear. Four different times. To tell us three things that we got to keep in mind with the phrase, do not fear. This is what Jesus says. Number one. That as we go into the world, we shouldn't be afraid or not be controlled by fear. Because as he's sending us into the world, we are not going by ourselves. The spirit, the spirit of God is going with us. So look at what he says in verse 19. But when they arrest you, do not worry or don't be afraid about what to say or how to say it. Verse 20, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. See, the emphasis of the text is not just that the Spirit is going to give you the words that you need to say or when you need to say it. The emphasis, the emphasis behind that is that the reason why the, the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what to say is because the Holy Spirit is with you. Listen up. The same spirit that Romans chapter 8 says is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. Not a wimpy spirit. It's the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, and he says, that's the God that goes with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you're going to say. Don't be afraid of people. The spirit goes with you. The same spirit that 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says that is not a spirit of fear or cowardness, but that is a spirit of power, love, and self-control. You know when the spirit is moving and working? When you can exercise power, love, and self-control. That's why I have a hard time when Christians just lose it in the name of Jesus how do you lose it in the name of Jesus if the Spirit of God that lives in you is a spirit of power, love, and self-control? This is what Jesus says to the disciples. I'm sending you out, and yes, you will be persecuted, but don't fear because the Spirit goes with you and will be with you. He is not a spirit of fear, but he is a spirit of power, love, and self-control. You won't be alone. Then he also tells the disciples... And he, and he tells us that as we go into the world, we shouldn't be afraid because God is the ultimate judge. That comes from verse 26. Look at what it says. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. This is super interesting. The text says that in everything we do and everything that we go through, God is present and God sees. And God one day, says the text, will make everything right. 
because he is the ultimate judge. Nothing will be concealed. Everything will be revealed. God knows what you go through. God knows what I go through. And one day, because he is holy and righteous, he will make things right. Meaning that one day, the people, unless they repent, they will get what they deserve. You know what that's important to me if I think about persecution and things like that? Because it tells me that my job is not to bring vengeance upon the people that goes after me. That's not my role. That's God's role. I don't hold grudges against people that goes against me. You know why? Because that's not my role. God has to deal with that. He is the ultimate judge, not me. And number three, he says to them, do not fear because of who you are to him. Verse 28, do not be afraid of those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that verse is really interesting because he calls us on one end not to be afraid of people and what people could do to you. And at the same time, calls you to fear God. And for many modern readers, that's like, what? He actually says, fear God because he's got the power and the right to kill your body and your soul. Send it to hell. Listen up, church. I want to make the argument that unless we learn how to fear God, we will never go into the world and do what we're supposed to do. But I also want to try to correct how some people think of the fear of God. See, for some people, the fear of God is just having been intimidated by God. Because God is God. He's holy. He's powerful. He's righteous. He's all of that. And to a certain degree, I would say, you should be afraid of him. That's what the Bible says, that we should tremble before him. You know, how some of the issues that I got with modern-day Christianity is that we have a God that fits in here. You get it out when you need it. Use him and put it back in. That's not the God of the Bible. We tremble before him. So to a certain degree, to fear God is to understand and recognize that God is intimidating. He is God. But the Bible also shows you a God that is beautiful and perfect, gentle, caring, patient, understanding, compassionate, merciful, full of grace, a loving God. So not only God is intimidating on one end, but he's also attractive. Did you know that that's what it means to fear God? It's to see those two things at the same time without compromising and without separating because God cannot be fragmented. Michael Horton again uses this illustration to help us understand what that means. He says that when we think of God, we should... Um, have kind of the same sensation, similar sensation, that when we see something in nature that is magnificent. So, for example, he says, when you look at the Niagara Falls, well, he didn't use that. I'm using that. But Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or the Himalayas or the, the Amazon Forest, when you look at those things that are huge, man, that's intimidating. If you've ever been in an airplane flying over an ocean and you look down, that's intimidating. I'm thinking, if this thing falls, no one, no one would ever find me. Because it's huge. It's magnificent. 
It causes me to fear. And yet when something is that magnificent and beautiful, it brings you in. Like the Grand Canyon. You look at it and it's intimidating, but it brings you in. The Niagara Falls is magnificent and it brings you in. And he says, and I agree, that God is like that. And if you want to learn to fear him, you have to see those two things at the same time. And I want to make the argument that you cannot fear God like that unless you truly believe in the concept of hell. And this is when the church stays quiet. You know why? Because there's a lot of people that think that you cannot reconcile a God of love with a God of hell. Because we think that these two things are opposite to one another, and I want to make the argument once again that hell might be the best way you can understand the love of God. That unless you truly believe and understand that hell is a reality, you might not understand the love of God. And you might not be able to fear God and see him as intimidating and beautiful at the same time. So I'm going to give you four arguments super quick. Number one, can we truly believe that God is a, loving of, uh, a, God, is a God of love if we don't see a God that sees the evil in this world and does nothing about it? Can you actually believe that God is loving if he sees all injustice and corruption and abuse and says, oh, it's okay, y'all, I'm love. Can you say that? If God looks at an injustice and abuse and corruption and he doesn't do anything about it, he stops being loving and holy right there and then. Hell is a reminder that God is just that he is holy, and that he takes sin serious. Hell, argument number two, is also important because can you believe that God is a God of love if he doesn't let you know what is it that is going to happen to you if you don't surrender to him and you learn to die to your sin every day? See, hell in the Bible is described in so many different ways, but at least some of the description could be something like a place of disintegration, condemnation, and isolation. A place of eternal guilt. A place in which it doesn't matter how much you do, you could never pay yourself out of it. So why, why do we need hell? Why did Jesus talk about hell more than anybody else in the Bible? The loving Jesus, why did he talk about hell more than anybody else in the Bible? So you don't go there. So we take evangelism serious. So we know what would happen to the people that don't come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why would I not want my family to avoid that place? You see, hell tells me that God is a God of love. Argument number three, is there really a better way 
for us to understand how important the cross was. See, I am convinced, man, the more I think about this, the more I'm convinced that unless I believe in the concept of hell and what hell represents and what hell does, I can't really embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because at the cross, at the same time, in the cross, we could see the wrath of God, what hell looks like, and the love of God, the fear of God together at the same time. You know, what, you know what the cross tells me? That God is serious about your sin and my sin. So and so much that Jesus had to die for us. That it's not about your big sins and your little sins, that every single sin we commit is against a holy God. Therefore, Jesus had to die for us. Doesn't that make you tremble? And at the same time, he shows you this beautiful and merciful and graceful God that takes upon himself what we deserve, the hell we deserve. See, you cannot truly understand the cross of Jesus unless you understand also that hell is real. That Jesus experienced hell upon himself. Because if, if it was not him... It'll be you and I. And argument number four, if hell doesn't exist, not only you cannot understand what Jesus did for you at the cross, but you don't understand how worthy you are to him. Look at what it says in verse 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold by a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, verse 31. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many of those little birds. See, and it tells you that our God is a God that cares about anything in this creation, including a tiny little bird. And it tells you that God would do anything for those little birds. But he tells you that if you ever question how much you are to him, look at what Jesus did at the cross. Look at what, how far he was going, he was willing to go for you. Look at the hell he took. Look at how much he loves you. And fear him. And when you fear him, you won't fear anybody else. Do you have that? Believe it, embrace it, and now go into the world. And expect what you ought to expect. But remember that you're not alone, that God is the ultimate judge, and that the only way we can do that is by fear him well. Let me pray. God, sometimes I, I would like hell to not exist. Because in all honesty, Lord, I, I hate the idea that people I love may go there. 
But at the same time, Lord, that's a powerful motivation for me to take the gospel serious. And to love people well. And at the same time, it's this sober reminder, Lord, that that's the place where I deserve to be. Even today. Because me, sometimes, I still take my sin for granted. So please forgive us. And allow us to respond to the call you're made to us. And, give, and please give us a big picture of how terrifying you are, but how amazing you are. And please, Lord, send us out as truly people of love, representing you well, and bringing people to salvation. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...